Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with the co-founders of a new nonprofit that wants to make contemporary art more accessible. Their organization, Art in Common, just opened a new exhibit. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal will join me to talk about Goodman Theater's new production of the Chekhov classic, The Cherry Orchard. Later in the show, I'll check in with local movie critic Nick Allen to talk about the weird history of toy-based movies. And I'll preview the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Association's 23-24 Jazz Series. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. A new nonprofit wants to bring down the barriers that have traditionally kept some people from engaging with contemporary art. The organization is called Art in Common. It was founded by Chicago native Abby Pucker and LA-based curator Zoe Lukov. The enterprise is making its presence felt in Chicago. Art in Common just opened a free exhibition in the Fulton Market District titled Boil, Toil, and Trouble. More on the exhibit in a bit. First, a look back at how two creative-minded people from different areas came together to launch a new avenue for presenting art. I've always really enjoyed like working with creative people and around creative people. After college, Pucker, who grew up in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood, found herself in positions more on the business development side of creative fields. In 2019, she worked on a project in Chicago that sparked some familiar feelings. So right before COVID, I was producing an immersive art experience in Pilsen with Hebrew Brantley called Nevermore Park. And that was with a production company that I was working with in LA, which is called Madison Wells Media. And it was so much about bringing new audiences to art in a way that felt like it was meeting audiences where they were at, but it wasn't compromising the work of the artist. Not long after that, the pandemic erupted, which paused any potential future plans. Fast forward to the spring of 2021, Pucker saw an exhibit titled Skin in the Game, curated by Lukov. Then I went to Miami Basel. This was in 2021. And a friend of mine had introduced me to this amazing woman named Zoe, who I had never heard of before and never met. So I went to the show and I walked in and it just struck me as so amazing that Zoe was doing essentially what I had been trying to get back to after doing Nevermore Park, which was really meeting audiences where they were at, welcoming all kinds of audiences, from collectors to artists to people wandering in on the street that had nothing to do with it and didn't know about art. I had actually just been in a planning meeting for Expo Chicago. A light bulb went off and I was like, we have to bring this show to Chicago. She came up to me like, this is amazing. The text that you wrote is incredible. We need to bring this to Chicago. This is Zoe Lukov. And I had no experience in Chicago. I'd only been in Chicago once before, actually. I was like, okay, I guess we could talk about it. And we did. And we just spoke about it over the course of a couple of phone calls, you know, Zoom calls. We basically just trusted each other. It was this very implicit trust. She she basically said, you know, I'm a producer. I can produce this. Just come and let's let's do it. And I kind of just trusted her because she seemed so incredible. And she trusted me. We'd never worked together. 
it was kind of just like this magic connection because, you know, working together in that intimate of a way on a large scale project takes a lot of trust. And we both really came at this with the same ethos and the same approach that we wanted to change the way that people experience contemporary art. And we wanted to change the rules about who could be in conversation with each other and how people were able to then interpret those conversations for themselves. Just all of these things that we felt like were very constricting in the traditional art world, we wanted to break down those barriers. After Skin in the Game had a successful run in Chicago last year, Pucker and Lukov realized their shared vision for making art more accessible could have life beyond one exhibition or even one city. After Chicago last year went so well, we, you know, Abby was like, let's just do this for real. So we started talking about it in Chicago in April and then kind of formalized it in the summer as Art in Common, as a nonprofit that would essentially serve as a platform for more inclusive spaces for the exploration of contemporary art to sort of open up to broader audiences and also to, to show art in sort of unlikely spaces or spaces that might not already be defined as art viewing spaces. So there, there's kind of more of an openness to how you interact with it, experience it, sit with it, mm-hmm. um, kind of like how we are now, even just sitting this close to the work in this way. We realized that it was something special and a couple months later we decided to formalize it and make it into Art in Common Inc. which is technically a not-for-profit but we don't have a C3 status so we work with a fiscal sponsor called Artadia which is an amazing arts granting organization that's a national organization but has a big presence in Chicago as well as LA where we've also done this latest show that we've done together called Boil, Toil, and Trouble, which is under the banner of Art in Common. So the organization Art in Common exists to create new ways of art viewing and new experiences for art viewing within a contemporary art context. Generally, we're partnering with developers to create spaces in empty retail spaces or you know, empty sort of manufacturing spaces. Um, to bring new context and new life to those spaces. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that moving forward. The last two shows that we've done together, Skin in the Game and then this one, Boil, Toil and Trouble, have both been that. But we are excited to see what the future brings in terms of the format of the kinds of shows that we're doing and the scale as well. And I realize, so this is early days, but I am kind of curious, ideal, long-term, like what do you envision? Long term, I think that we would love to do multimedia projects. We'd love to do documentary. We would love to do one artist doing a monumental show and doing a bunch of programming around the country around that show. Anything that gets the content of what we're doing to the most people while sort of conserving and preserving the experience and making sure that we include local community in all the work that we're doing to me is a success. So a site-specific installation in one space that then we do programming around the country where we partner with community organizations that align with the mission of that artist and we have conversation and we spark conversation and we create spaces within those different communities around the country that all tie back to that one work, right? Or same thing with like a documentary or a sort of different kind of media project um, where we have sort of the you know, nucleus of the project exists 
in one format, but then we're able to actually make that relevant to people in their own community. So again, meeting people where they're at. I think that's what our projects will look like. Is there an advantage to the nonprofit status? Yeah, so I think the nonprofit status and the way that we do it allows us to be flexible. And it also just allows us not to be driven by the market in the same way. Because if we were for profit, we would then probably have to sell. I mean, we'd have to sell something, right? We'd have to sell either art or we'd have to sell, I don't know, merch or we'd have to get, you know, marketing dollars in to subsidize the cost of the shows. And we could potentially do that. Part of what I like about the nonprofit element of things is that it allows the civic community in whatever cities we're in to come together to really support something that they believe in. And it also allows corporations to do that, whether it's through, you know, their marketing dollars or through their sort of, you know, corporate responsibility dollars or philanthropy dollars. I don't love philanthropy as a model. I think it's not super sustainable. I think museums, there's a lot of issues with traditional institutions and museums because when you rely on the funding of a few very wealthy people or foundations or entities, it's just not a super stable groundwork that you're laying. So for us, I mean, you know, in LA, we partnered with Meta and one of their verticals called We the Culture because they had a a creator series around BIPOC creators, specifically black creators, uh, that they really wanted to celebrate alongside us. And they felt like the themes of our show and the way that we approach things and our ethos and the sort of diversity in all ways in the show really aligned with what they were doing. It's easier for us not to like overcharge people for some things. It's easier for us not to sell work and have to sell work and have to depend on that. But at the same time, I mean, it's a, it's a question I struggle with because I don't love the model. I specifically started Gertie, which is my other company, as a for-profit because I don't necessarily believe in the limitations of a nonprofit. I also think that people should feel like they have to buy into something, right, and have to invest in it in their own way in order for it to be sustainable. I think that's part of the issue with museums is that, you know, if you look at a lot of the budgets... Um, and the makeup of the budgets and the makeup of the sort of sources of of cash um, and revenue, a lot of it comes from those individual donors and those high net worth donors um, or the big foundations and not a lot of it comes from ticket sales and attendance. And so I don't think that that's a healthy relationship. So I, you know, I struggle with it. There's not an easy answer. Or the museum's curators then maybe like skew their programming to bring in people and then it's like, well, what's really driving this? Yeah, and who is it for, right? I think that's a lot of what we talk about, Zoe and I talk about. That's why our partnership works really well, right? Because I think she is super focused on the artists and the conversation between the works and between the artists and historically she deeply understands the context of these works and she also understands the context of them in the contemporary world in the modern world and then I come at it really from like a audience development sort of standpoint so for me it's like I think this work is deeply moving and amazing and really powerful but I also understand that we have to do programming with local community organizations so it's a it's a push-pull between the objects being centered in the space and the people and their experience being centered and like how do we create the best relationship between those things if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section i'm gary zydek i'm talking with abby pucker and zoe lukov co-founders of the new nonprofit art in common the organization is presenting a free exhibit in chicago's fulton market neighborhood titled boil toil and trouble i don't know what i said 
then I was like, boil, toil, and trouble. <laughs> Which is literally just a bastardization of Macbeth. Like, it, I said it wrong. It's a double, double toil and trouble is the line from Macbeth that the witches say when they're predicting the future and the trouble that's ahead. And I said it wrong. I said boil, toil, and trouble. And that became, it's just stuck. And I was like, that's the show. This is Zoe Lukov talking about the inspiration for the new exhibit, which features work from over 60 artists. I say it's about water and witches. That's like the short version. The show's about water and witches. <laughs> but that's kind of, I'm dumbing it down, of course. The show is called Boil, Toil, and Trouble because I'm thinking about witches and have been for a long time, mostly because I actually think I've always worked with artists who are witches without talking about that. Okay. I think I, at their best, I'm kind of, call it naive or idealistic or something. I think at their best, artists really are channeling new information for a broad public. I think that artists can often be mediums, they can be seers, they can they can really tell us about ourselves. They are the storytellers that tell us about ourselves. And so for a long time I've thought of artists as witches in that way. And for a long time I've thought about art as healing, as like a healing practice for both the artist and for the viewer. Witchcraft is one of the themes explored in the exhibit. The other is water. Truly, it was a personal thing. I became really engaged with water and the ocean and kind of found my own spiritual practice through that. I'm a surfer now, a bad surfer, but <laughs> I surf all the time. I love it. And it. I say like very flippantly, it's become my church, but I really have found that it really has become a spiritual practice for me. And so I was, as that was happening for me personally, I started to see a lot of the artists that I was interested in and a lot of the work I was interested in was dealing with water, was dealing with the alchemy of water, the spiritual aspects of water. I was interested in seeing like a lot of artists who were, whether they were exploring their own spiritual practices or the, the practices of kind of other anthropological practices, water was always a key element, holy water, baptismal water. There's always been gods and monsters of the sea. The great epic tales that we tell about who we are have always engaged with gods and monsters of the sea. Many of the goddesses of the sea are personified as mermaids. The mermaid, of course, has huge symbolism across the board from the sirens, you know, the Greek sirens who lure sailors to their death. The mermaid, interestingly, was also used as a symbol of a, a house of prostitution back in the day. So there's kind of these elements of water creatures that were just fascinating to me and kind of how we were personifying God. So I just kind of mashed those two things together in my head and realized that this show was gonna be a cauldron. It was gonna be a cauldron of boiling water and it was gonna have all of these elements in it and it was gonna think about the way also that, you know, the witch's cauldron is a brew that can intoxicate you, it can poison you, but it can also cure you, it can heal you. I know you were talking symbolically, but when I walked into the space today, you said you were working on a potion. I was truly working on a potion. <laughs> um, there's a number of potions in the show. The potion I was working on is a Candace Lynn piece that we are really honored to have on loan from Benedicta Body and Nordenstahl's collection. Um, she's uh, Argentinian, but she lives here in Chicago. She has an incredible collection of some very emerging artists, some very well-established artists. She's really um, a force and has introduced me to a lot of new artists I might not otherwise know, actually. And the Candace Lynn piece is called Minoritarian Medicine, and it's a shelf, like kind of almost looks like an apothecary or a cabinet of curiosities. And it has um, 
all kinds of little bottles and ceramics and it's really beautiful we can go look at it together um, but it comes with mason jars filled with herbs and different elements that then we had to combine to finish the potion that now sits on the shelves so we filled the, these jars to finish off the installation which looks a bit like an apothecary after debuting in Miami late last year, Boil, Toil, and Trouble made its way to L.A., and now it's in Chicago, Pucker's hometown. And I would say the show has had a different character, a different depth, a different kind of feeling in each city, just based on, you know, the different makeup of the show. Is there another stop after this? This is it. Chicago is our last stop, which is really special for me because we're able to have this incredible space, which is by far the biggest space that we've been in of the three cities. And, you know, I get to be on home turf and really show out for my community here um, and for Expo and for Tony Carmen, who uh, has been such an amazing partner and supporter. The relationship that has grown out of me doing this show with Zoe here last year in Chicago, the relationship that's been able to grow with Tony throughout the last year and in preparation for this year has been one of the most beautiful things about moving back to Chicago. That was Abby Pucker. We also heard from Zoe Lukov. They're the co-founders of the new nonprofit Art in Common. The organization is presenting Boil, Toil, and Trouble at 400 North Peoria in Chicago. Admission is free. You can find more information at artincommon.art. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. As we've discussed on the show several times, we've seen a season of change over the last few years in Chicago's theater landscape as several longtime artistic and administrative leaders have stepped down or retired, opening the door for a new wave of voices. One of the biggest names to announce their departure in this period of change was Goodman Theater's longtime artistic director, Robert Falls. The final season he programmed is winding down with a play that's fitting on several levels, Anton Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. Falls is directing the production, which recently opened and continues through the end of the month. Carrie, we'll start with you. In one aspect, the Cherry Orchard represents a fitting conclusion to Falls' programming at the Goodman because he's directed a number of Chekhov's other plays during his tenure. Yeah, I believe he's directed all the major ones. I'm not sure if he did Ivanov, one of the earlier ones, but uh, back in 95 he did, I believe, Three Sisters, and then more recently he's done, within this century, um, he has done both Siegel and Uncle Vanya. So, and, and Cherry Orchard, I think, you know, I, if I make a, may make a pun, is the cherry <laughs> on top of uh, <laughs> the work that he has done with both Chekhov and with the Goodman. It's a play, for those who don't know, that's very much about sort of passing of the old guard, changes, how people react to change, how they adapt to change, how they steadfastly refuse to acknowledge change that is happening all around them, often to their to their detriment. It's a play, it was the last play that Chekhov wrote, produced in 1904. He died later that year of tuberculosis at age 44. And it's about uh, a family of Russian, you know, sort of near aristocrats, I guess we would call them, but wealthy landowners who are no longer quite so wealthy since the liberation of the Serbs some decades earlier. 
and what they have to do to try to save their fortune, to save their way of life, and why, even though the answer is right in front of their nose and is, in fact, presented to them by a former serf who now has become quite wealthy in his own right, they just simply cannot do it. It can be frustrating to watch people but I, who, who are so bent on not doing the obvious thing that would save them, and I think that is what makes this story overall, and this production in particular, so very, very arresting, and I found it uh, quite quite moving, too. It's also very funny. I think, uh, I'm sure Jonathan can fill us in more on this, but Chekhov always described it as a comedy, uh, was very upset that it was kind of presented as a drama by the Moscow Art Theater, and I would say that Falls' production leans on the comedy, but not to the detriment of the underlying bittersweet story about who these people are in relation to each other and in relation to themselves. I was quite taken by it. I'm a fan. I will not even try to hide that. Jonathan, I'm very curious what your response to this show was. Well, The Cherry Orchard always astonishes me and moves me when it's done by a caring and competent director and the caring cast as well. And uh, this valedictory production as artistic director by Robert Falls is no exception. The cast is wonderful. There are 11 or 12 major characters, so I'm not going to start confusing people with a lot of the names, even though all the actors deserve it. The cast is wonderful. The physical production is spare but handsome. And Falls has studied playwright Anton Chekhov quite deeply. Even so, his interpretation surprised me in many ways, some revelatory, but others contrary to my own understanding of this play, which has always been one of my very favorites. And it comes down to, now, Carrie, you and I saw different performances. I saw the final preview on Easter Sunday afternoon, and you saw it uh, a day or two days or three days later. And it comes down to what you already pointed out, that Chekhov declared The Cherry Orchard as a comedy, but the original director, the famous Konstantin Stanislavski, he of method acting, he felt it was tragic. And now the performance I saw, I definitely felt that Falls was supporting the tragic view he made Act Two, this is a four-act play, he made Act Two, which is supposed to be a picnic and usually is the most comic scene, he made it entirely serious while injecting farce actions into the Act Three uh, ballroom party scene, which isn't entirely unreasonable, but it's not how it is usually done. But I'll tell you what surprised me the most. Uh, carry or the interpretations of the two dominant characters. First, there's the bankrupt estate owner, Madame Ramevskaya, and the other one, Yermolai Lopahin, the wealthy entrepreneurial family friend whose father, as you noted, Carrie, was once a serf on the estate. Now, Ranovskaya always is lovely and charming and enchanting, and so she is in this production, but she also appears to be rather vapid in this version, more so than I've suspected before. And Lopahin, for his part, really seethes with repressed anger, which comes out ferociously in a very famous speech he makes in that party scene, describing how he bought the estate and its renowned cherry orchard at a bankruptcy auction. It's clear, too, that Lopahin is in love with the older Ranovskaya, which isn't normally played or portrayed. 
what do you think to that, Carrie? What do you, you know, what do you have to say? You know, it's interesting because I was looking at it, you know, through the lens. I, I, in my review for the reader, I referenced an, a production of about 20 years ago, which I don't know if our listeners would remember, that Tina Landau did at Steppenwolf. And at the time, that idea of change, this was right after the re-election of George W. Bush, so the lines about, you know, the educated elite, people don't respect us anymore, um, you know, those sort of resonated with me. Here, I think, now that we've been through so many more political upheavals, I think perhaps some of that anger felt a little earned to me. It felt like it was kind of leaning in to some of the divisiveness. I wouldn't say that I found Kate Fry's uh, Raniskaya uh, vapid so much as just a little bit maddening. Um, I think that we see that she is a woman who's had deep loss, that she has she has a very generous heart. She's always yes, empty. She what little yes. is left in her purse for other people, um, even when she could probably use it herself. But I think that it's, she's just, you know, it's, uh, here's a weird thing that came to my mind while I was watching this, too. I, I, and I hadn't made this connection before, but I was sort of thinking about her in terms of Blanche Dubois in Streetcar Named Desire. You know, another woman who has just been browned down by loss, who is not necessarily a weak person, but has become so hollowed out by death, by loss of, of stature, by so many other things that they no longer feel safe operating on anything except kind of this service. And that's kind of how I felt Kate Fry approached the character, that she sort of, I flip from one thing to another, because if I land on one thing for too long, that's when I can get hurt. Yeah. Um, so that was my interpretation. But, yeah, I mean, you're certainly welcome to have a, have a contrary or, you know, or differing view on that. Um, and, again, I think maybe that also plays into a little bit with the anger that you uh, described. And I, I agree with you. It is played a little bit more... Uh, with, with a little more um, bite than I've seen, you know, well, in even, other other times. Yeah, but with well, Lopakin, even in even in the language, which is not the language you, you usually hear in that mm-hmm. scene. Uh, in addition to directing, Falls also did his own adaptation, and I assume that he worked from a literal word for word translation from yeah, the original. Yeah, book. the translation and, is by it, George Calderon, who also did Seagull, which he did. So I'm not—I haven't read the translation, so I can't speak to how much you know Falls yeah, would have but, changed it from that. Well, when 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 adapters who do not who are not fluent in Russian do an adaptation, they are working not from a a, a translation. Um, mm-hmm you know, shaped for the stage, but from a literal word-for-word translation. And, and um, uh, the, the version that Falls has produced is, has lines in it and moments that are completely new to me, and also several bits which have been moved from their usual places in the play to other places. And it gives certain events and characters a focus or an emphasis or a size they do not customarily have. Uh, among them, the colorful fellow estate owner, Semyonov Pichy, <laughs> and also the ancient butler Fierce, who has more stage time, both of them, than they uh-huh. usually do. And I think Falls' purpose, um, and you already, you already said this, uh, Kerry, his purpose is to emphasize the generation gap between the older characters and the over-eager and often cruel younger mm-hmm. characters. Right as well as the social dysfunction that is seeding revolution in Russia. And like you, I noted some, some, some contemporary resonances. The social dysfunction seems to echo our increasingly confrontational <laughs> sociopolitical <laughs> climate 
in our own country today and much of the world besides. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do, though, and what, what I found resonant for myself is this idea of we all like to think that we're forward-thinking people, we are open to change, we are open-minded, but when, you know, when the rubber hits the road, how much do you really want to change your life? How much do you really... So even an incremental change can feel monumental, particularly, as I said, in the case of, uh, of Kate Fry's character, that she's already been through so much loss. It's like, I just want to hang on to this thing that I have, this thing that makes me happy. I cannot take one more thing being taken away from me. It's not a spoiler, I don't think, to know that uh, the great loss in her life is her son, who drowned as a young boy on a on the river and that runs through the property, and that is what led her to spend several years abroad in Paris. And coming back, she is confronted with reminders, literal physical reminders of his presence. And I think that uh, there's one moment early on in the play that I found very, very um, emotionally affecting, where she comes across a toy that belonged to him. And it's it's just a heartbreaking little tableau. Um, you know, and, and not I think a, not so, a word is not a word is spoken. Not a word is said. And, and, and tears came to my eyes, you know, and I think that's what's so tricky about Chekhov, because all of these things are happening at the same time. People are having their hearts broken, and people are falling down the stairs, you know. Uh, sometimes it could be the same person. We don't know. Uh, and I think that that's what gives it this beautiful uh, quality of being ni- perhaps neither comic nor tragic, but people as they truly are. And that can be hard in a theatricalized setting to get across. Um, because especially here, because we're in sort of this, you know, we're looking at this proscenium. I did want to mention that I thought that um, Todd Rosenthal's design, particularly for the, the the room inside the house that we mostly see, it felt very much like a diorama to me. It's a playroom, high ceilings, blue cloudy effect, so it, you know, gold stars, so it feels almost like a dreamland. But at the same time, it's so so box-like that you almost get the sense that these are people who are almost trapped in some kind of historical diorama. And indeed, I think that that's, you know, the tragedy of these characters. It's kind of their vulnerability and what makes them funny, you know, and frustrating. And bringing it back to my original point, it made me realize perhaps I'm not as open to change as I think I am. You know, it made me think about the times in my life when I've kind of stubbornly hung on to doing something or not doing something that I know in the long run would have benefited me, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, going against logic, going against what seems to be the right thing to do, I just didn't do it. And I think that's what Chekhov understands, and I think it's so beautiful that this was the last thing he wrote as he was approaching death, and he had to know that it was approaching. Um, Chekhov, you know, loved all his characters. Absolutely. There's There's not a villain in the piece. And there, there, there's not a villain in any of his important major plays, the four or even the five great ones. Mm-hmm. There are people who are dreamers. There are people who are hopeful. There are people who can't get out of their own way, which is what the cherry orchard is filled, right. <laughs> filled with. It. And, and Chekhov regarded this as the human comedy, mm-hmm. which is why he regarded this as a, as a comedy. But, you know, I, I, I very much agree with you because, you know, this production gets so many little details absolutely right, from the use of a real klezmer band in Act 3 during the ball that they are throwing mm. with what little money they have left, to the mysterious snapping wire sound effect 
which you hear twice. And, and, and since Chekhov put it into the script, no one has been able to really figure out what he had in mind there. But this all works beautifully in this production. But still, as much as I admire it, I'm not completely comfortable with the interpretation, which I'd love to sit down and discuss with Bob Falls you know, <laughs> over a glass of wine or, 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 or vodka, Russian vodka. <laughs> uh, but, you know, perhaps... As, you know, echoing what you said, perhaps I am now of the older generation myself and, and, and not as open to change. And I want the hard truths of the cherry orchard to be served with more genteel warmth, which they usually are. Yeah, I mean, I do think that when I saw the Landau production, and I think, again, some of this might just be the physical nature of the, of the staging. That was the last great production that I can remember, and of course, that's going back like 20 years, so bear, you know, take, take with a grain of salt. But that was in the upstairs space at Steppenwolf, and it was very much immersive. So we felt like we were surrounded on all sides by these sort of filmy lace curtains through which the characters moved. It wasn't exactly a memory play, because that's not really what the play is, but it, it did literally have sort of softer edges, and I think part of it's just with the physical staging, which I did find very effective, but I can definitely see your point, Jonathan, how it might feel a little distancing and how in that setting some of these performances might come across with sharper elbows <laughs> as they move across that proscenium than they may in other settings. But I think the fact that we're, you know, that we're talking about it like this shows that the production did what it should do, which gets us talking about it, which gets us thinking about these characters, which gets us debating how we feel about them, how we would like to see them depicted. And again, I, I think there is actually great empathy here. Sometimes you may have to look a little bit further for some characters than others. I mean, I think one of the great things about Chekhov that I like is you can have people who are saying something that is perfectly right, but you're still like, God, that person is just kind of a jerk, the way right. they say it. And in fact, I think there is even a line at one point about you shouldn't say it that way. The, uh, the, there's a young student, well, not so young, actually, kind of a perpetual student who had been the, the tutor of the young boy who drowned. And he's, you know, very much the model of the revolutionary intellectual, you know, and, and everything he says about the country, you know, our nation has never come to terms with its past, and the, the educated just sit around and drink. He's absolutely right, but there's a point when you just think, Dude, could you just dial it down? <laughs> and, yeah. like, and he, you know, and, and I think that those things they're tricky to play. But for the most part, I I found that the ensemble, which you have rightly noted, Jonathan, is just absolutely top flight. Really managed to kind of square the circle, if you will, on that. Our lengthy discussion here. This is why, uh, hopefully, uh, listeners will understand. This is why the Cherry Orchard is regarded as one of the very greatest plays of all time ever. Right. And it is still done and done and done and done in in all you know all the the, the languages of the world. I saw in well, this is a few years ago, 2014. I was at an international theater conference in Beijing, and I saw a production of The Cherry Orchard in 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 Chinese. So it is a a powerful play, and it's right. about people as they as they really are, which is foolish right. sometimes, vain sometimes generous sometimes, selfish sometimes. It's all there without Chekhov ever condemning anyone for how they are. I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, now it's, it's been presented that this is Robert Falls' swan song at the Goodman. My understanding was that it's the last thing he's directing that he selected as artistic director. I haven't heard 
that he's stepping away from directing altogether. But have you heard that? Because no, I haven't. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I, yeah, it's kind of like oh, his last show is a Goodman. I'd be very surprised if he doesn't come back. Right. But yeah, it's his valedictory production. That's absolutely yes. Yeah, as artistic director. Right. Yeah. This was the last season that, uh, that this show is in the last season that he selected. They have a very exciting new season coming up under artistic director Susan B. Booth. But I, I can't imagine that, you know, that Bob Falls will just be off, you know, playing croquet or, or billiards, which might be a more appropriate one, given the, the, the one of the characters play. in this yeah. play is a billiards addict. I, I, for one, will be very, very unhappy if I never see another Bob Falls production. He is a, a wonderful artist. Right. A wonderful director, and I, I have written and said before that Bob is more interesting as a director when he fails, which he mm-hmm. doesn't very often. Right, but he's more interesting when he fails than almost every and, other director is when he's and here. He is, they and succeed. he is, and he is yeah. very much willing to take risks. You know, I, he did a, a production of Measure for Measure that is still seared into my memory for a choice that he made, going completely against you know what's in yep. the Shakespearean play. I'm sure purists hated it. I, I found it jolting and, and on, in retrospect, absolutely a correct choice based on the world that he had created in that. He's a world maker, and I think that's what's great. He, you know, he, he can work in the small details, but he can also work these bigger epic moments. And I think you and I both saw his, his monumental production of The Iceman Cometh several years mm. ago, mm. Which, which worked all those things. I mean, it was absolutely a journey. <laughs> and I guess that in a, in, a, in a smaller way, I think that that's how The Cherry Orchard landed with me, too. I felt like I have been somewhere with the people in this play. I have learned something about them. And, and it's staying with me. And that is, uh, that is absolutely the most you can hope for from an evening of theater, I think. All right. Goodman Theaters, The Cherry Orchard, continues through April 30th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. You got the touch. You got the power. Yeah! I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. The first quarter of 2023 has been encouraging for movie studios. For the past three years, the industry has been hoping for a return to normal. And while we're not quite at pre-pandemic levels, there is reason for optimism. So far, domestic cinemas have brought in $1.8 billion during the first three months of the year, which is about 25% behind 2019 first quarter levels. The good news is the number represents a 9% increase from last year's pace. The summer movie season will play a big role determining just how successful 2023 is at the box office. Two films that came out this past month are providing optimism. The animated Super Mario Brothers and Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves did really well in April. It's also worth noting both films are based on games. Toy-based movies have become increasingly common over the past couple of decades, though the results have been mixed. Mostly bad. Local film critic and writer Nick Allen recently wrote a piece on Vulture exploring the Hasbro cinematic universe. Hasbro, of course, is one of the world's biggest toy companies. They make Transformers, G.I. Joes, My Little Ponies, as well as a number of board games. I caught up with Alan to talk about the Dungeons & Dragons movie and the history of Hasbro product-based films. So this new Dungeons & Dragons movie got some pretty good reviews, uh, and we're going to talk about that a a little bit later. But first, I wanted to to dive into this piece you wrote for Vulture about the Hasbro cinematic universe. 
when I was growing up, there were some cartoon movies based on Hasbro toys, uh, some of which I was very much a fan of, but they were really marketed towards kids. And then at, at a certain point in the 2000s, there was this shift, and we started to see live-action movies based on toys and games, and I know there's a nostalgia factor baked into that, but wanted to, to get a sense of what you found in your research looking back at the, the history of Hasbro as a filmmaking entity. The Dungeons & Dragons movie is not an isolated incident of toys and games trying to be turned into movies by companies that can see the potential in profiting off of childhood or nostalgia or like a niche audience. But it, it kind of leads to a very bizarre history of when those bids for movie-going audiences do and do not work. And Hasbro has happens to have the full spectrum of box office successes and failures if we look back, so the the beginnings, you know, Hasbro makes toys, and then at a certain yeah. point they realize. I mean, I guess there's like a Saturday morning cartoon element to this, like the cartoons totally. helps, help sell toys, but then they realize they can also do movies. Yes. Yeah, so, so this kind of the strange history kind of begins with Hasbro being a company that realized they have these toys, and there's a way to sell these toys, which is to make cartoons. Right. You've got My Little Pony. You've got Transformers. You got GI Joe. Those were kind of three huge properties for the toy company. But movies was, were kind of like the, the next step, the next you know, curiosity. But like you said, yeah, it was originally seen as a kid's thing. Certainly the cartoons were kind of handled in that way. But in 1986, in a way that's um, kind of bizarre in, in hindsight because it didn't, there was a huge gap afterward. But in 1986, there were two movies made by Hasbro for two of their properties, Transformers the movie and My Little Pony the movie. Both of them based off the cartoons, you know, both of them, like, you really got to like, the, you really got to like the IP to enjoy those movies. But they represented, like, this kind of foresight of this company being like, well, wait, I mean, like, kids, kids go to movies too, right? So let's just make these movies. But they were not successful. And uh, for one point, like the Transformers movie, the, you know, in 1986 is the first, it's a feature length film with all these characters from the cartoons and they kill off the main character Optimus Prime like in the <laughs> middle of the movie. And they did that to introduce um, to kind of clean slate and bring in a new toy line. And right. it's kind of like this amazing idea that, you know, Hasbro was they were thinking about, oh, like let's get into the movie market, but they weren't thinking about like the true integrity of their characters or, or the integrity of, you know, keeping their characters alive because there's a lot of like Transformers that are killed in Transformers the movie, which is also kind of wild because it is it's a kid's movie, you know. <laughs> it's a true cartoon movie. The failure of My Little Pony and Transformers the movie killed the theatrical plans for G.I. Joe the movie, which is kind of amazing since G.I. Joe was so popular for Hasbro in the eighties. They put they released that to video and then and then kind of just like there weren't any Hasbro movies like that until 2007 with Transformers. Do you have like a, an idea of why they weren't successful? Is it just they were just bad movies? I think I think it's a mix of um, the movies were also part of these undeveloped like they didn't know what how to tell these stories just yet. And I think the Hasbro legacy, the kind of my curiosity in this has been the question of like, can you make a good movie out of a toy? Right. And they certainly were not able to answer that night back in 1986. Uh, I think because, yes, it, it was either written off as like, oh, that's for, you know, kids. In My Little Pony, the movie does not have a, a, a large appeal, even though it had, you know, Danny DeVito, Cloris Leachman, Ray Perlman, Madeline Kahn, Tony Randall, um, all that kind of stuff. I think it was at a time when toys were not, movies were not taken seriously, and they certainly were not given any reason to be taken seriously. 
but that is entirely different now right, because of right. movies like Michael Bay's Transformers. Uh, well, we're going to move into more current times, but I just have to say yeah. full, full disclosure, and I think I told you this a little bit off mic, like that <laughs> those that Transformers, that 86 Transformers movie and the G.I. Joe movie were right in my wheelhouse yep. uh, as far as I had older cousins who were really into that. And then so when they came out on VHS, that was like prime cartoon viewing years for me and uh, i was obsessed with those movies and i can still remember watching transformers the movie and there are like robot deaths and i was just like what um and and as a little kid you know five years old you don't understand what uh now as an adult i've rewatched transformers the movie and it's like so clearly designed yeah to introduce new toys and it's like wow this is this is like so calculating by a toy company to right. to do it this way. And also, side bit of trivia: you mentioned the cast for My Little Pony, which yeah. I, I have not seen. But uh, for Transformers, it has Orson Welles. It's his last, I think, credited film role is Transformers yeah. the movie. And then Don Johnson, who's like a major star, is in the GI Joe movie. Oh, I did not know that. I yeah, he vo- he voices like one of the main characters. Yeah, and so I just had to throw in my very Jeez. familiar with those '80s versions of, of those movies. We'll fast forward a little bit, and I remember now as an adult when I hear news that they're going to make a live-action Transformers movie in the mid 2000s. Right. What did you find? Was it something like Michael Bay was like, this has potential to be like an action movie goldmine? I think it really was about a different, you know, boy turned filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, um, who has said that he used to play with the Transformers toys with his kid. You know, he said he would like, you know, lay on the floor and play with them, you know, turning them from one thing into another, like a little puzzle, but also like an action figure piece. And I think that that's a huge part to the soul of the movie initially is the Spielberg element of you know a boy and his robot and also and then warfare but then of course it gets blown up by Bay proportions but uh, what's important about that one is that it's a part of a concerted effort by Hasbro uh, around that time to get into entertainment to film and TV to lean more into yeah like visual storytelling for their toys and characters by the uh, late CEO Brian Goldner of Hasbro that was kind of his big cause that he took on and he became an executive producer for these movies but we have him to thank and Spielberg and Bay to thank for completely kind of really changing the idea or challenging not uh, always successfully about how you could make a successful blockbuster out of a toy especially if you give it like a nice shiny scene as Bay does and a bunch of big action and so forth. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with film critic and writer Nick Allen about the history of toy-based movies, specifically Hasbro's cinematic efforts. So we have that first live-action Transformers movie. It's a hit, and then a sequel a couple years later that did pretty well. Then we start to see a wave of Hasbro releases. Was there a sense of diminishing returns at a certain point? A lot of those films didn't seem to do too well at the box office or with critics. So there's this amazing part of this history, I think, that after the first Transformers came out with the hit for Paramount, Hasbro got into a deal with Universal to make other movies like Candyland, Stretch Armstrong, Magic the Gathering. And as you may know, those movies don't exist because they couldn't get them into production because there was like a weakening market for these movies as evident by Battleship, which came out in 2012. Right. Um, Peter Berg got his chance to make his kind of great CGI 
destruction war movie for, for Universal, but as much as Universal put a lot of money into marketing, but also just the budget itself, it did not pay off well. It was a huge disaster for Universal. And so that was a uh, kind of a staggering uh, example of how just because there's familiar IP doesn't uh, mean that people are going to want to see it. The only uh, kind of smooth sailing or kind of smooth growth came from the Transformers movies, which kind of more or less made more and more money each time they came out. But they were, they were kind of on their own track compared to other toy movies. Maybe that was a good time to like talk about IP. Um, so for folks maybe that don't follow this stuff closely, IP, intellectual property, of course there's like this nostalgia for some of these things like... For a person like me, Transformers and G.I. Joe, there's nostalgia, but is it also, I mean, there's just a hunger in Hollywood for, for ideas, like any type of idea, anything that has something that can be turned into a story and that creates this environment that opens up the doors for like a toy to be turned into a movie? Right. Well, yeah, it's a, it's that familiarity, right? And there's something that's familiar, but also kind of exclusive about certain parts of childhood. So everybody knows what Candyland is, but at the same point, do people want to see a Candyland movie? Right, right. Tapping into a thing that everybody knows that's part of like everybody's childhood doesn't equal an audience or a good movie. And I think as we're so IP diluted, it really comes down to filmmakers almost. And over the past decade, we've seen a bunch of movies with varying results. There was like a spinoff of the Transformers series, uh, Bumblebee in 2018, that did pretty well yeah. and got good, I think, good uh, critics' reactions. Yeah. And then Dungeons & Dragons just came out, and I want to get your thoughts on that. But a different toy company, Mattel, which is another right. leading toy company, do you know how involved they are with the Barbie movie that's coming out? I, you know what? I don't. Okay. Um, and I, but I do think that their movie uh, certainly is an example of like, well... This is a recognizable brand. And yes, there will be skeptics about, like, how do you make a movie out of this? But people are going to watch it to find out, unless it's, you know, a huge disaster from the get-go. And probably not. But it has that curiosity going for it. Now, I seem to remember there was a Dungeons & Dragons movie that, that came out in, in 2000. I'm guessing that wasn't that successful. Absolutely not. No, it was a historic box office failure. Like, for a, a, a widely released movie, they pulled it out of theaters two weeks after release. Yikes. Just like, yeah, just a, a really, uh, New Line Cinema, they, they tried to get into it early. Joel Silver, who produced like Lisa Weapon and Matrix Reloaded and so forth, was behind it. Francis Ford Coppola was at one point going to direct it. But no, the final product was not a box office success, the exact opposite, and also kind of helped further paint how much a game movie is a joke, basically. So then here we are, over 20 years later, why do you think they decided to, to try it again? I think there is such a popularity. There's an audience that is playing the game, but there's also an audience that would see this kind of movie and not need to know about the game. Uh, I'm in the latter category, so I enjoyed the new movie a good deal, and I didn't need to know any of the references. Or, you know, I know there was people in the audience who were perking up at certain references and names and all that. Um, I think that... Uh, Dungeons and Dragons seems to be a property that's always kind of uh, tempted Hollywood. There's there's been so many screenplays that were around since like the 2010s, and it looks just from the trailers I've seen, it looks funny. Is it take like a tongue in cheek approach? Yeah, yeah, that's a part of its kind of familiarity. Is that it's kind of like Deadpool in Guardians of the Galaxy in medieval times. So it has a certain tone that it accomplishes. That's far different from the 2000 version. Um, uh, the 2000 Dungeons and Dragons is so misbegotten, but this one figures it out. It's funnier, definitely. 
what would the success of, of this Dungeons and Dragons mean for the, the future of toy-based movies? Well, I think certainly it, it could almost maybe bring a, uh, a another surge of, of contracts to make board game movies. It's kind of interesting, uh, the question of what's in the future. There isn't a whole lot that's um, on the docket, and that part is because, and partly because the current Hasbro powers that be are not as interested in establishing those ideas. Yeah, they don't have that same kind of hunger to um, find these new projects based on these toys. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Of course, there's Dungeons and Dragons, then the uh, Barbie, and then another Transformers movie this summer. So the results there could probably dictate the future. Nick, thank you so much. It's always fun having you on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That's film critic and writer Nick Allen. You can read his piece on the Hasbro Cinematic Universe at vulture.com. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. This tune is called Sister Rosa. It's off Christian McBride's 2020 album, The Movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons. The acclaimed bassist will be performing pieces from the album next year at Symphony Center. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra Association unveiled its 2023-24 Symphony Center Presents Jazz Series schedule a couple of days ago. Established in 1994, the series is turning 30. The upcoming eight-concert series features some of the biggest names in jazz, including breakout stars like Samara Joy and legends like Herbie Hancock. I recently caught up with the person responsible for programming the CSO's jazz series, Senior Director of Programming for Symphony Center Presents, Jim Fahey. We talked about his approach to curation. So before we dive into the upcoming season, I'm curious about your general approach to programming the jazz series. Do you have a a set starting point? Well, I have to wait for dates to become available. The jazz series kind of was made possible when uh, we moved our Friday matinees from a 3 o'clock start to a 1.30 start years and years and years ago. Over, over 30 years ago now. And so it allowed us to have those Friday nights uh, that were available. So those dates become available sometime in the fall. Uh, I also know when the orchestra's away on tour that I have those periods of time to book. So I have to wait for my dates, first of all. And then I do my best to keep an eye on uh, what artists are possible or what artists are touring and what artists that we want to bring to our stage. Uh, It's always a puzzle to put together the series. Uh, Some things fall into place rather easily and some things take some time um, and take some convincing sometimes uh, and also the the dates to work out for both our stage and and what the visiting artists or the touring artists uh, have available in their plans. Let's dive into the 23-24 season. Of course, there are some legends on the schedule that we'll get into later, but the season kicks off in the fall with a young artist who I believe will be making their Symphony Center debut, Grammy Award-winning vocalist Samara Joy. Yes, she'll make her debut uh, in late October to start to open the series, our 30th uh, season. Uh, And I'm really thrilled to have her here after seeing her both at um, 
Monterey Jazz Festival last uh, September and then in New York in January. I think she's going to be really amazing in our hall and I'm looking forward to her voice, uh, you know, uh, and I think our audiences, if they don't know him, her, I think they're going to really enjoy hearing her uh, perform. I think she's really so natural and um, so uh, such a beautiful singer. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. And I think it's going to be a great way to, to open the 30s season with such a new artist. And as you said, Grammy uh, winner, both with the, her jazz album and Artist of the Year, which was quite an amazing feat. I was watching the Grammys that night and the best new artist category is always a big one. A lot of pop acts but it was nice to see a, a jazz artist get recognized yeah i was uh, i was watching it as well and and um pulling for her let's put it that <laughs> way as well so i'm really glad that she uh she she won that honor and uh and i think she's uh you know she's so young and and i think she's got a great future ahead of her and like i said I'm looking forward to having her here I'm going to jump around a little bit and fast forward to January. One of my favorites, Makai McRaven, he'll be coming back to the Symphony Center stage. Yes, uh, thrilled to have him back after his uh, performances of In These Times. Uh, that, that He made his debut here with, with that performance. We will have a special guest to, that will come with him. We can't announce that yet, but we'll announce that uh, sometime this summer. Uh, and I'm just thrilled to have him return, really doing what whatever he w- kind of wants to do on our stage. And I think he has uh, a tremendous uh, group of musicians that he works with, some local and some formerly local, etc. Mm. And um, I've, I've always really enjoyed all of his music, and, and I'm, I, I think he'll, again, bring a wonderful program to the series. Uh, and then in February, this, uh, this caught my eye, acclaimed bassist Christian McBride will be presenting what sounds like a really interesting program inspired by the 60s civil rights movement. Right. I've known about this program for some time, and I'm really uh, happy to bring it to our stage. It's a real a tribute to these four amazing civil rights icons, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, and... I'm blanking Malcolm on Malcolm X. Malcolm X, thank you, and uh, and also it, it, it involves a, a, a tribute to uh, President Obama. So it will involve soloists that Christian will bring, uh, along with the Chicago Jazz Orchestra, will be performing, and we're working to confirm a local gospel choir and the narrators to to uh, portray those those amazing and inspiring words. Um, and the program is, so the, the piece is really beautifully uh, put together and, and uh, um, really is based upon these amazing um, words uh, of these icons. So uh, I think it's will be a wonderful night. Definitely caught my attention when I read the, the schedule. Then in March, a little uh, less than a year from now, living legend uh, Herbie Hancock will take the Symphony Center stage and he has a, a long relationship with CSO Presents. Yes, well, he, he actually predates our presentation okay. series almost by <laughs> he, when first coming to perform with the Chicago Symphony at the age of 12. Oh, wow. um, uh, he started actually coming back um, quite frequently. His first uh, appearance on the jazz series was in 97. He did a duo with Wayne Shorter and has been back numerous times with various groups. He celebrated his 65th birthday here with two performances and um, 
actually just recently performed uh, the first concert on our 21-22 season to kind of bring us back from COVID. So uh, we're, we're thrilled to have Herbie back. We're thrilled to have him on our stage anytime he, he can come. And uh, uh, this one took a little bit of extra effort to make him think that far in advance, but we're thrilled that he's going to be able to, to come here uh, in late March. something like that you'll leave it to him to come up with what he's he's going to do or do you have an idea of what the the program will be that night that's really up to him and i i would be thrilled with whatever uh he he can bring and i'm sure uh uh he he hasn't thought that far ahead and and i don't blame him so you know jazz is in the moment for him and i you know i think that's exactly what uh we'll expect from him on that night and so I did mention jazz at Lincoln Center. Winton Marsalis comes every year, except for maybe that that COVID year. But I think I, I don't know if I read something or I heard something that this year his visit will be a little longer. Yes, he's going. The the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra and Winton Marsalis will be back for four performances, one on the jazz series, and that per, that concert will. Um, it's right around the 125th birthday of Duke Ellington, so that concert will feature uh, another tribute to Duke Ellington. And then it'll be here for three concerts with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, a kind of a joint program that we put together um, that involves a movement from his swing symphony and a kind of back and forth uh, based upon uh, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. So the Chicago Symphony Orchestra will play the original and uh, the Jazz Lincoln Center will play some arrangements made by the, the amazing members of that band and, and their, their really wonderful talents uh, for arranging. Uh, so that'll be on, sh- on, the sh- you know, on display over those four nights. And then we'll also do uh, educational activities while they're here, which is something that has been a part of their residency uh, for, for, for years and years. So thrilled that they'll be back to uh, work with both uh, you know, Chicago uh, public school students and young jazz musicians. This season ends with a special concert featuring three acclaimed jazz musicians. Definitely sort of strangely titled duets, but I'm sure there'll be some trios in there as well. Diane Reeves, who's uh, been an important part of this series for, for years. Chucho Valdez, who has also been appeared on our series for, for a number of years, a number of times, including his, uh, uh, we did this co-commission with him last fall, The Creation. And, um, and Joe Lovano, who also hasn't been on our stage for some time, but, but uh, has a long history with the, with the series. And uh, they'll come together, the three of them. Um, I'm sure they're going to be playing duets, but I expect that they'll also uh, join together in a trio at the end. So uh, I think it's a fitting way to, to end the, the season on, on a high note with only three musicians, but three really powerful and, and uh, amazing musicians. Don't That's Jim Fahey. He's the Senior Director of Programming for Symphony Center Presents. Subscriptions for Symphony Center's Jazz Series are on sale now. Individual tickets will go on sale this summer. You can check out the schedule for yourself at cso.org. So wait for me till then Be glad 
that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for another edition of the arts section right here on 90.9 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. And I'll love you forever Oh, don't be sad We'll surely be together The sky is bluer overhead If you will just believe in me